Welcome to Urban Forum Northwest with your co-host, Hayward Evans and Eddie Rye. We have a number of people we're going to talk with today, and we're going to start off with at least Hayward and my state senator from the 37th Legislative District in Washington State, uh, Senator Rebecca Saldana. So, Senator Saldana, welcome to Urban Forum Northwest, and we know that you have uh, have been very busy. Uh, I want to say we do appreciate your support, number one, for what will be the Central District Community Preservation and Development Authority that will be known as the McKinney Center for Community and Economic Development because of the fact Reverend McKinney was one of the reasons why that building was erected in the first place. So why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you ended up in the Senate? Sure. Thank you so much for having me here, um, Mr. Rye. Uh, So as you said, I am in the state Senate. I'm representing the 37th Legislative District, which is the best district in Washington State. And for your listeners that are from far and wide, it, it includes our south end of Seattle, Washington, the Central District, which is our historic African-American pop, uh, uh, neighborhood, as well as the International Chinatown uh, and the Rainier Valley, which has always been one of the most diverse uh, zip codes in our state, uh, as well as Skyway and downtown Renton, which is the city next to Seattle. And uh, I got to the Senate in 2016. Um, but but I was born and raised in Seattle. Uh, my dad is a, a Mexican-American immigrant uh, that grew up uh, picking uh, cotton in, in segregated southern Texas and then migrated uh, eventually to Oregon and Washington, has worked in as a union factory in downtown in Georgetown, which is um, our in Seattle. And my mom is uh, from farming community in Ohio, came over to – eventually came over here and um, is uh, – a social worker by trade, but um, and worked in the education system until they both retired. Uh, I raised my kids here, but um, really I became a, a union organizer. I uh, worked with the farm workers uh, and janitors unions uh, before I had the opportunity to work uh, for Congressman McDermott. And then did my last um, work as for a policy shop um, called Puget Sound Sage that worked on issues of labor policy, transportation, um, and equitable development uh, in the Valley and in the 37th. So um, looking for urban solutions um, and, um, and recognizing that we needed a strong uh, state partner that was going to support um, local solutions centered around uh, racial justice and economic justice um, and making sure that the, that, that, that was there. So um, glad to be able to represent the 37th. And um, since 2017, um, my party has um, taken on the majority, and so I now serve as a deputy leader of the Democratic majority in the Senate and vice chair of our transportation committee. Um, this past year, as you spoke, um, we were able to secure significant funding um, to um, support the uh, official development of um, the, com- the Central District uh, PDA, um, and uh, we also um, um, have advanced legislation over the last couple of years um, to uh, establish an environmental justice task force, the Office of Equity, uh, and um, and implement um, the first really in the nation in terms of um, a paid medical um, family leave um, act that um, just went in effect this year. And so far, in terms of our state, 
And we know Governor Inslee has been one of the pro, probably the leaders, really, uh, along with Governor Gavin Newsom and Governor Brown out of Oregon, in dealing with this uh, uh, pandemic, this uh, COVID-19, which is really changing the landscape for a lot of business, it's no longer business as usual. And I just wanted to have you comment on that. And are you satisfied with what is happening with the state level so far? Well, I do. Um, I, I do think we, as a state, recognized um, the, the seriousness um, of what we were looking at earlier than a lot of states. And you know, the legislature um, set aside two hundred million dollars. It was one of our last acts before our session ended um, in March um, to be able to um, put in some emergency funding to enter, into our unemployment insurance, which we've seen the largest um, number of claims in the history of our unemployment program here in Washington state. Uh, and, um, you know, we also put more money into public health, but I am not satisfied. And I think that um, the underlying problem is that COVID is just uh, is laying bare the inequities that we have in investment um, and the, the growing wealth and health disparity that we have um, among um, low income um, as well as among um, black immigrant people of color communities, um, you know, throughout our nation. But um, it's showing up here in the numbers of um, the percentage of um, people of color and Latino and API folks that are um, that are getting infected at higher rates um, and also having um, more disparate impacts. So I think that, um, you know, one of the things I think is really important is for all of us that are able to stay home and stay healthy um, so that, um, you know, we can um, protect our essential workforce. Um, but too many of our essential workers, whether they're farm workers, uh, janitorial workers, grocery workers, um, public transit drivers, um, and for, you know, uh, I've seen that, unfortunately, um, we're treating our essential workers as sacrificial as opposed to really giving them the equipment that they need and the protections that they need to be able to do their jobs safely. Um, so so that's a big issue that I think we need to be looking at and, um, and pushing our federal government as well as when we come back to make sure that those essential workers are getting the, the protections and the pay that they, that they need. Yeah, we just had uh, Juan Jose Bocanegra on, on – uh... Uh, two weeks oh, he ago. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, and they, they were having the caravan down to Olympia to support the e essential uh, workers. Uh, and did you just mention, I want to ask my co-host Hayward Evans if he has a comment. He's been intricately involved in the 37th District politics. I want to see if he has a question or a comment. Well, Senator Sedona, first, thank you for being here. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your, your history to an extent. You're from Delray, the West Seattle neighborhood. I'm at a high point. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah, you are. And then, and then your family. Yeah, I'm at a high point. Straight out of High Point Project. Born and raised mm -hmm. in Seattle. But then the beauty, the beauty is, your family was picking cotton in Texas, like Estella Ortega. Then got right into the union, like Estella. I think that's absolutely fantastic. And what you're doing with housing, and I think people need to know. You brought $16 million into our community under the Equitable Development Initiative for the Grand Street Station that gets a whole lot of people into town when work was open. So I just want to give you that salute. And then also, you went to Seattle U. You know, Eddie's daughter went there. <laughs> and, I, and you did uh, Theology and Humanity. 
Anybody yes, who is into theology, I like a lot because they know God is very, very real. Can you share uh, with the listenership, you're on the uh, Washington Recovery Committee. What's going on with them right now in order to um, assist the governor in this transition out of the pandemic? Yeah, so, um, you know, as we mentioned, right, the, the session's over, but, um, you know, our, our call to serve continues. So um, the Senate has formed uh, a select committee on long-term recovery, and I am honored to have been selected along with um, Senator Frott, who's from North Seattle, uh, Senator Dingra, uh, who represents um, uh, East Side, uh, and uh, Senator Rolfes, um, who is, also happens to be the chair of our Ways and Means Committee. So we're just establishing, we're just trying to figure out, like, how do we make sure that um, we're leading? Um, you know, we know that people are still suffering, um, but we know that at some point we need to get back, uh, you know, that that we need to get people back into the economy. So, you know, what are the things that we, lessons that we can learn from um, COVID and how, how we, it informs policy when we come back into session. So um, we'll be looking at um, healthcare system. We'll be looking at, um, you know, the, the hit to our revenue and, you know, what are things and approaches that we can take um, as a state that's responsible uh, as well as, um, you know, just looking at, um, you know, some trends that we're seeing. So, you know, if, if you guys have folks um, that you think that we should be hearing from, I mean, we definitely sending that to me. We're shaping up what that um, agenda will look like. And our first meeting will be um, towards the end of early June, I believe. Um, yeah. And uh, when, when, is the, when will this commission be meeting? Was your next meeting in terms of... Uh preparing i guess we need to prepare for a vaccine or something first but but i was just trying to figure out the next meeting and uh how that's progressing yeah so this is a new committee it's just it was just formed um senator billig um so the select committee will just be forming um, and our first meeting will be in june i don't think we have an official date but um we can definitely make sure that we push out that information to you right now we're in the um and informing ourselves, and also I think part of it is, is public public government. Like this, the first call, will, the first meeting will most likely be virtually, um, but yeah. uh, it will be broadcast live on TVW, uh, as well as there will be ways for people to to call in and to be able to participate um, in the that meeting. Um, so that will be the first step, uh, and then in yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, Senator, the communities of color are being impacted disproportionately. Is the state really looking at that in terms of um, tracking people and making sure that the uh, testing is taking place in those communities now, particularly our district, the 37? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, thankfully, we do have good advocates. Um, I know that the members of Color Caucus um, and your delegation um, were um, early on uh, making sure that uh, we're speaking up and and um, and letting our state Department of Health, um, you know, and of course all these tests were were created at the federal level, but um, at the state level we were not get, initially getting that disaggregated data. Um, and but we do now have um, and King County Department of Health just put out um, an, an, uh, a recent um, kind of analysis of the data that. Um, definitely was showing um, disproportionate um, uh, impact to uh, communities of color. And so one of the results of that is that as we're, we've been advocating for um, more testing, um, 
is that here in Rainier, well, I live in Rainier Beach. Uh, so in Rainier Beach at the um, boat launch um, at Beersheba on Wednesdays and Saturdays, anyone can come, either walk up or drive up. Um, to be able to um, request um, testing. Um, and so we are trying to push. I think there's still a lot more that needs to be done to make sure that our community um, clinics um, and, and our uh, culturally competent um, uh, health boards um, and trusted advocates are, are able to access and make sure that we have um, enough testing. So uh, in King County, we're getting better, um, but we still do not have enough testing that anyone that requests it can get it. Um, but we are making sure and pushing for, and um, King County has been responsive in terms of where they're putting those tests in place. Yeah, that that testing place is right across from Rainier Beach High School, and it's Wednesdays and Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. And I didn't realize yeah. that people would walk up. I've been telling people they have to drive up, but I'm glad to hear that's some additional information that I didn't have, and I'm glad you were able to share it with us. Yes, because we do recognize that, and, you know, our district is actually greener than a lot of the other districts in Seattle because we have more people that, by either choice or necessity, don't have their own vehicles and so need to rely on public transit or other ways to be able to get someplace. And so uh, we don't want, um, and, and and if we hear, I please want, I want to, I, I hope that folks will let me know, um, but um, people should be able to walk up at that facility. Well, Senator Saldana, I really want to thank you for your time today. And uh, we want to keep you on there so you can keep our folks posted because you're on a very key committee and everybody in the world wants to know what the state is doing and what everybody else is doing about uh, about uh, the coronavirus. So thank you very much for your time today, and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you, you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Okay, you too, Don. Stay safe. All right, you too. Okay. So, uh Hayward, do you have an update on uh, the the art contest that's going to be held uh, because of, in lieu of the fact that we're not going to be having a uh, parade this year? Yeah, you know, right now what we're looking at is that we have uh, everything's in the works, and hopefully we're going to have some serious sponsors that I think the community is going to be very proud of. But right now we're looking at having all the committees formed the first part of June in the next two weeks. And at that point, all the information is going to be announced to the community. We feel really proud about this, since this has to do with the vision of unity. What do people perceive unity to be? And regardless of what you love in art, it's, a, it's an opportunity for somebody to express their inner being, their inner self, and show their art as it relates to community love. Because remember, we're all interconnected. Okay. And I don't know how many people see that, but we are. Okay. Uh, our next guest is uh, a world-famous, legendary civil rights attorney, Lem Howell. And uh, we see the injustices going on in Georgia. Lem had to deal with some injustices in Seattle and Martin Luther King, Jr. County. So Lem Howell, Hayward Evans, and Eddie Wright, Urban Forum Northwest. Uh, sir, I would like to have you comment on... Uh, the prosecutors and the, the district attorneys and all the other people, I guess at one time down south they used to wear the Klan outfits because they're acting out the Klan mentality right now. Uh, we'd like to have you comment on that, sir, and thank you for being here. Oh, not at all, Eddie. Good to be with you. Um, it seems to me, you know, all we can get 
is from what the press reports have shown. And I've been watching CNN with Don Lemon and uh, uh, Como, who seem to have gone more into it than in other uh, news sources. But it reminds me of Trayvon Martin. These uh, people who are going to be vigilantes, don't you know? Of course, he's a retired police officer, and he's going to, this kid is running down the street, and he's going to be a detective and so forth. So he kills him. And it, as somebody said, it was almost like a hunting adventure because he's got this big shotgun and so forth. He doesn't use a simple handgun. So it's not for defense. It's to go hunting. And you know what they hunt, right, especially down there in Georgia. It really is, and, and Georgia's funny that it has uh, a, a citizen's arrest statute, but it has to be, from the news reports, has to be a felony. In no instance is this a felony, because even if the deceased had been looking at this construction going on, nothing was taken. He didn't have a weapon, so he was unarmed. So uh, they don't have that defense that uh, it was a citizen's arrest. And uh, it's a good thing, because it could be said that there may have been criminal trespass, and that would have been a misdemeanor, and so it wouldn't qualify for the defense of citizens' arrest. Uh, I don't know why some people feel that it's necessary to hunt blacks, but that is, it seems like the Civil War isn't over and that black lives don't count for anything. It is just like we had heard before. That's why I was so happy to hear Judge Robard said in doing that case by uh, the Justice Department against the city of Seattle for the use of excessive force, that black lives matter. And, you know, it, it's... I have to tell you, Eddie, the thing that is most disconcerting to me is that it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. It keeps on going. And until perpetrators are arrested, prosecuted, and sent to prison, it, uh, it may never stop. We see people being killed. They don't have uh, the, the victims are don't have weapons, but to some people, black lives don't matter, and this is another example of it. I, I can't tell you how it's upsetting, how upsetting it is to me, because as you know, in the old days when we did Larry Ward case and the Anderson case. And you, you say, well, you know, it must come to an end. In those days, we didn't have video to prove that we were correct. At least we had, when Donald Ray was a medical examiner in King County, we had an honest medical examiner who told you exactly what happened from the medical evidence. 
that you could discern what happened. Like in Anderson's case, that the gun was 12 to 18 inches away from his Adam's apple when he was blasted away. You know, and still today, how many years this happened? 30, 35 years ago? I'm still upset. Well, maybe it wasn't that long, but I'm still upset when I think about it. And then when I see the later reincarnation of it, the, the continuation of this type of disrespect for uh, black lives, it it's it's really upsetting to me. It's like it it doesn't it doesn't end. It doesn't stop. It's like the Trump administration. You think you're living a nightmare, and you're wondering when we are going to wake up from it. And uh, this is this is this is very disquieting. I I must say I I when I read about that and saw the saw the clip. Why are they out there after this man? He's an ex-police. The perpetrator is an ex-police officer. Why doesn't he call the police department if there's a violation of law? Why are you going to take the law into your own hands and be uh, uh, arresting officer, prosecutor, executioner, and everything? It, it's, it, it's very disturbing. And the, the news reports indicate that this gentleman, uh, this 26-year-old, was looking to go into uh, becoming an electrician so that he would, seeing new construction going on, be curious about it and so forth. And, of course, regardless of anything of circumstances that existed before, they had no reason, no reason to uh, uh, confront him with a shotgun and, 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 and blast him away. It's very disturbing. It reminds me of the Trevon Martin case. You remember how upset we all were with that, and no justice Never was yet. done in that case. Hopefully some justice will be done in this case. And uh, I don't know anything about the new woman prosecutor that they have assigned to try this case. But she still will be confronted by a jury, and I have my reservations of whether she'll be able to exact justice from a jury. Don't forget, chances are that there'll probably be whites, on the, and maybe even a majority of whites, on whatever jury is chosen. And for some reason, we faced it in Seattle when we had black witnesses against white witnesses with a white jury, racism is still alive and well in this country, unfortunately. So I'm Little very Hall, concerned. You certainly have given our, given our listeners that did, wasn't aware of some of the challenges that we've had and some of the uh, incidents that's occurred to uh, black men uh, in this, this city. So uh, and we really appreciate you, and you are an expert. So we'll definitely be calling on you as this case goes down the, uh, the line. And I'm glad they were able, I guess, what, four uh, uh, prosecutors recused themselves, and now we finally got a prosecutor. It's almost like the Klan a long time ago when you took the robes off. It was the sheriff, the deputies, the judge, and other city officials. So uh, very little has changed except they don't have the Klan robes on, the hoods on anymore. Only one guy did down in Florida. He had to wear a mask and he had his Klan hood on. At least he let everybody know who he was. Lim, I want to thank you very much, and we'll be in touch with you. Thank you for sharing that. 
Thank you. Have a good day and stay safe. I'm doing that, brother. Good. <laughs> okay, then. All, All right. right. Uh, we're going to take a break. Hey, hey, whatever's and I will be back at Urban Forum Northwest with Ed Prince uh, after the break. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill and the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.ctacshops.com. Ready to shake things up? Try Alternative Talk 1150. All right, Eric is spinning the tunes, and Hayward Evans and Eddie Rye, co-host in Urban Forum Northwest. Want to give a shout-out to our, uh, the people that make it possible, Sound Transit Small Business De- Development and Labor Compliance Office. And uh, uh, Leslie Jones will have a new position, Hayward. She's going to be the labor relations person for Sound Transit. And in the City of Seattle's purchase, again, a construction service, uh, construction services office with Liz Alzier, Port of Seattle Diversity and Contracting Office with Mian Rice, Concourse Concessions, Dave Fukuhara, SeaTac Bar Group, LLC, with Rod O'Neill and Jerry Whitsett. I know they'll be glad when the planes start flying again because they're out at the SeaTac Airport. And then Stephanie Ogle, Soul Sense Media, takes care of our media. Uh, I want to also give a shout-out of condolence to uh, Roy Dunn and family. And uh, Hayward knows Miss Cora Dunn. She's very active at Mount Zion. But uh, his mm-hmm. wife passed away. And, uh, boy, and, and she's a cousin of uh, Anthony and Patrick Allen. And uh, Anthony Allen just lost his brother-in-law, uh, a couple of months ago, he was the inspector up at uh, uh, the Everett plant for Boeing. But our next guest is a man with a whole bunch of titles. His name is Ed Prince. He's on the Renton City Council. He's the executive director of the Commission on African American Affairs. And he also is a new Sound Transit Board member. So we got representation on the Sound Transit Board. So, uh, Ed Prince, why don't you let us know what you're doing? And I know you're tired of doing virtual meetings, but let us know. Uh, give us an update on on the commission and on uh, on the renting of what's happening in the city, we, but you don't have that much time, though, and also on Sound Transit. 
Uh, it's good to be with you, Eddie and Hayward. Um, I, yes, I, as someone who's used to being out and being with people, trying to adjust to the Zoom meetings and also trying to adjust to being a bootleg teacher to my kids has been a challenge. But, you know, it's persistence to achieve, and we need to all stay healthy. Uh, so we need to stay home. Um, so recently, um, I'm having conversations with the Secretary of Department of Corrections, uh, about how they're handling the COVID-19 cases in prisons. Um, as you're aware, uh, the African-American community has been hit really hard by COVID-19. Um, the numbers in Washington are only slightly higher than our population, uh, but it's still higher than our population in general. And so I want to find out how they're, how they're maintaining uh, the work they're doing um, in our Washington State prisons. Um, I participated in a call yesterday with the superintendent of public instruction to talk about what they're going to do as far as reopening schools in the fall. Um, and every parent is cheering, hoping that schools can get back to normal. Um, but right now it's looking like, well, we have to see where we're at as far as the phases, but it may not be business as usual in the schoolhouse come the fall. Um, and, and very important, I've been working with the Department of Commerce um, and um, Cheryl Smith on ways that the commerce can support small black businesses during this crisis. Um, City of Renton's been busy. Um, we're trying to make sure that we're able to maintain funding. All cities are kind of at a standstill budgetary-wise because of the cuts that they're enduring. Uh, Renton's in slightly better shape than some cities. Uh, Tukwila hit really hard with South Center Mall being closed, I mean, because that's really the economic engine in their city. Uh, last week, we passed a resolution uh, stating that we weren't going to tolerate um, any sort of hate or bias crimes against anyone during this COVID-19 crisis. Uh, crimes like that have been on the rise, as we know, uh, and so we wanted to make sure that we made it clear that we were going to uh, stand strong with our communities of color. Uh, and with Sound Transit, I'm just brand new on there, so I'm learning the ropes. But uh, I really appreciate the, one of the first things uh, CEO Peter Rogoff said to me was their commitment to communities of color and, and, and their work on trying to do right with communities of color. And so I will submit myself to y'all's questions. Ed, in terms of that, this is your second uh, term on the Britain City Council. How many? How uh, long have you been on the Britain City Council? Third okay. Term. Now, is that a, a four-year term? Four-year term, yes. Just re-elected okay. last year. Uh, and you also served as president, right? I served as president twice, in 2015 and 2018. Okay, okay. And uh, we give our listening audience a little, uh, an idea of what uh, – uh, not just your duties, but what is the, the purpose and scope of work that the Commission on African-American Affairs, and, and, and also let people know, our listeners know, how the Commission, what areas they represent, and uh, uh, what are their duties? So the Commission advises the governor, state legislature, and state agencies on issues, policies, and practices impacting African-Americans across the state of Washington. Um, we have nine commissioners from all over the state um, who have various interests. 
Uh, we have uh, commissioners who are very interested in education, and that's their passion. Uh, we have commissioners that are very interested in criminal justice. Uh, one of my commissioners, Sean Quinn, and he served on the uh, Use of Deadly Force Task Force for the better part of three years, along with uh, uh, Sarah Franklin, who's the daughter of Senator Rosa Franklin. Um, we have people who are interested in health care. Um, and so we, we covered a whole gambit on issues that are impacting African Americans. Uh, there was a period in time uh, that predates me where we really only focus in the area of education, but we are really working hard on focusing on all, all areas that impact African Americans in the state. And so uh, in terms of what would say the top two priorities be for the commission? <sighs> top two priorities, that's tough. I would say we're always looking at economic security and economic justice. Uh, we're always looking at education because education is important. Um, and I, those would have to be a top two, but a third one in there would have to be the healthcare system and access to health and culturally competent health. Now, the other thing is that a lot of people are concerned. I'm talking to a lot of people who are uh, business owners. A lot of people are, are ready to just about throw their hands up because of disparity. Uh, we have a situation where the pri- the large contractor, which is usually a majority male, does the selecting. And uh, what happened out in Donna, Georgia, is kind of indicative of how uh, blacks are treated in general, whether uh-huh. it's getting into the University of Washington, unless you play football or basketball, and we got to get a return on that money anyway from all these major colleges because they're making trillions of dollars. None of that money's coming back to the black community, and they won't even let uh, non-black athletes in school hardly. You know, uh, they do well with other uh, people of color, but when it comes down to African descendants, the United States enslaved, uh, and they primarily uh, generate the revenue for uh, all the other college sports because uh, uh, baseball and, and soccer and crew. And, They're not uh, revenue-generating sports. And women's basketball, they don't generate a dime. And then we got these young brothers out there in all these schools making all this money, and these institutions of higher learning are not letting our students in unless they can, gen- they can be used. And then they don't do, uh, in terms of the faculty, administration, there should be a percentage goal of the African descendants, United States enslaved, 10% of the faculty, 10% of the administration, and 10% of the contracts need to be coming to the African American uh, descendants of United States slaves. I have nothing against other black people, but I'm not going to let anybody forget our 400 years, died in every war, and liberated this sucker. And as you know, after uh, doing Reconstruction, we had 1,500 blacks who uh, held positions like from the uh, governor of Louisiana, the secretary of state of South Carolina. Uh-huh. Uh, they had sheriffs in all these parishes. They had all kinds of state elected officials. And then that racism come in and eliminated all of that. So uh, when these new people come in here, they're told that blacks have they need to learn black history. That needs to be a requirement in the curriculum for every public school in the United States of America, because everybody needs to know, including uh, uh, immigrants. They need to know the contributions of African Americans. And I'm certainly hoping that uh, through the Commission on African American Affairs, that uh, that uh, information can go out to everyone and be shared with the other commissions that you have, because I know Toshiko would be receptive, uh-huh. and she understands what's going on. But I think that needs to be shared. And black history, as far as I'm concerned, need to be a part of the immigration test that you take to become a U.S. citizen. That's my personal opinion, but I just think that 
we have got to stop letting people marginalize us. And we see exactly what a lot of people think about us when you see what happened, even in the protests in, in the, the governor's office in Michigan. You're going to show up with swastikas and Confederate flags, you know. And then it, it came to Washington State up until about two or three years ago, Highway 99, from the Canadian border to the Oregon border, was named the Jefferson Davis the Highway. Davis Highway, the, yes. And, and the Civil War was over in 1863. And here we are talking about Washington become a state until 1889, but the Daughters of the Confederacy was able to talk. Uh, they were able to talk uh, some state uh, uh, officials and others into having, having this happen. Then they stepped back and disavowed any knowledge. I must say, though, uh, a former state representative by the name of uh, Hans, Hans Dunshi uh, was very instrumental in having that name changed. And he uh, went to uh, the uh, Snohomish County Council, but uh, when he went for re-election, he lost. And we think we know why he lost, because of his involvement with getting uh, uh, Jefferson Davis, uh, a Confederate president's name, off Highway 99. And, but that's, you know, that's the mentality we have. That's why we're not doing very well economically. And that's why, uh, we, and after all these years, black folks in this country are still very despised, mistreated. And every now and then you hear about uh, Ahmoud Arbery or something like that going on. And you don't hear about all the stuff like what happens to contractors like Fred Anderson, who was misused on a city contract. And the company uh, went over to left the city and went over. Stacy Whitback uh, had their uh, Breitbart website on their uh, business email, but yeah, that's all right. They can get another contract, but the brother gets messed over when people know that he is dealing with some people who uh, subscribe to racism. It's just mm-hmm. simple as that, and it's really unfortunate that has to happen. But that's a reality right now uh, in this in this city and in this country. I. You'll find no disagreement from me on any of that, Eddie. Well, i tell you one thing. I sure appreciate your time, and we want, to, want you to let us know when you got stuff coming up so we can get you on, okay? Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Eddie. Okay, Ed Prince, thank you very much. Renton City right. Council, member executive director of Washington State Commission on African American Affairs, and a new Sound Transit board member. So we will definitely be in touch with you, brother. All them hats you win. All right. Absolutely. Okay, thank Take you very care. much. Okay. We're going to take a break and come back uh, with uh, Congressman Hank Johnson from Georgia after this. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity and inclusion and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.ctacshops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill and the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, 
Link Live Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Live Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. There's a reason they invented the internet. It's called 1150kknw.com. All right, now we're back. Hey, what happens? Eddie Ryan with Congressman Hank Johnson out of Georgia. And a whole bunch of smoking is going on in Georgia right now, Congressman Hank. Uh, I, I don't think that's not in your district that where that happened, is it? No, it's about um, it's about 300 miles outside of Atlanta, uh, down on the Atlantic Ocean coast of Georgia. A little small, quaint uh, location where uh, the traditions of the past are still the norms of the present. And uh, so when you leave Georgia and you go down to places like that, uh, you you know, you're going back to uh, times when it was not, you know, I mean, black folks were in their place. And, uh, you know, white folks didn't have to worry about black folks getting out of their place because if they ever did get out of their place, then... You know, there was some kind of terrorist act by the Ku Klux Klan or some other uh, vigilante group that would send chills up the spines of of all of those who would watch as uh, street justice was meted out back then. And, uh, you know, so, you know, that's that's where this killing of... uh, Ahmad, Ahmad Arbery took place, uh, you know, in that kind of a setting. And uh, it's a 21st century uh, lynching. Yeah, they just left the picnic baskets and the families at home. That's what they used to do it. They would bring, I have a, be like a social outing on a Sunday afternoon when they would lynch black folk. And uh, when they got tired of lynching, they got the tarring and feathering. And as I was just thinking about the Klan, uh, you know, when they took the hoods off, it was the sheriff, the deputies, other city officials, and, and a couple of instances, the judges. So, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. we've been through this for quite a while. So, now, uh, why don't you just share with our listeners your feelings about the lack of justice in terms of the tape being held on to, the number of the prosecutors who have recused themselves from getting involved because of the, their relationships with uh, the father, the former cop? Yeah, the defendants who are accused of murder in this case, uh, Mr. George Barnhill, excuse me, Mr. Uh, Gregory McMichael, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. and his son, Travis McMichael, uh, are both uh, well-entrenched individuals in that uh, Brunswick, Georgia, uh, old school, good old boys network. Uh, Greg Gregory McMichael, uh, age 64, uh, 
formerly was the chief investigator for the Brunswick District Attorney's Office. And uh, he retired uh, maybe six, seven months ago. Um, and uh, he's well known in that area to law enforcement. And his son, who lives apparently in the house with uh, Gregory McMichael, I don't know if he's married or not, but he and his son apparently living together in that home, they uh, got a report of a black male having been seen in a house under construction, and uh, they got a call, and when they got the call, Greg McMichael told his son, you get your you get your shotgun, I'll get my pistol, and we go out and find this guy. They didn't think about calling the police, but they just sprung into action when they got a call about a black man in the neighborhood running down the street after being in a uh, house that's under construction. So they went looking for him, and they spotted him, and they uh, accosted him in the street. And the young man who was jogging down the street, basically not far from the area where he lives, he jogs through that area, and uh, lo and behold, he ends up taking three shots from a shotgun that Travis McMichael is holding. And, uh, and so the police are called. They find that the young man who was shot, Mr. Arbery, lives in the area, he is unarmed, and uh, we got two men here with guns that just shot him. And so somehow the DA's office, which used to employ Mr. Gregory McMichael, uh, gets into the uh, situation, and there is an edict that is issued that there won't be any arrests. And so these gentlemen are able to go home that night, wash up, have a, uh, take a shower, get a good meal, and go to sleep in their uh, beds. And, uh, and pretty much uh, that was uh, said and done. The district attorney then recused herself, and uh, a second district attorney was appointed by the Attorney General of Georgia, and uh, that gentleman took the case and sat on it, let the investigation be done by the Brunswick Police Department, which of course worked hand-in-hand -hand with Greg McMichael as the DA's chief investigator for many years. Um, so they're investigating one of their own. And so, of course, nothing happens for a couple of months. At that point, that second DA is accused of having a conflict of interest because his son works for the Brunswick uh, Police Department, works for the Brunswick DA. So there was a second uh, prosecutor who was appointed after uh, the Brunswick District Attorney recuses herself this gentleman's son works in her office, but he still took the case and sat on it for about two months. 
And then when he was forced to recuse himself because it was uncovered that he had a conflict of interest with his son working in the previous DA's office, he issues a letter accusing Mr. Arbery, the deceased, of perhaps being the reason why he was dead because he's insinuating that maybe he pulled on the shotgun and that's what caused the shotgun to go off. But at any rate, whether or not he caused his own death or not, his argument was that the two assailants were making a citizen's arrest and uh, it was of a criminal suspect and uh, they were uh, they were eligible to use uh, uh, deadly force to bring him in, uh, to bring him to justice. And uh, even if uh, it was not a case of uh, a citizen's arrest, it was a case of self-defense because the guy attacked uh, the guy with the shotgun. So it just so his letter then goes to the goes to the attorney general who appoints a new district attorney, a third district attorney. And so when that third district attorney is uh, appointed, he calls in the GBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, to do an independent investigation. And they took about 24 hours and went promptly and arrested the two suspects. But that comes almost three months after the murder occurred. So that's the kind of uh, route that this case has taken. It has now blown up in the press. And across the nation, everybody has seen what has happened down there in Brunswick, Georgia, a case of unequal justice thus far. And uh, so that's kind of where we are with it. Well, I want to take, we got about two or three minutes left. I wanted to, you to just talk about uh, the impact of the coronavirus and the lackluster uh, response we're getting from the White House and the administration. Well, this has been a complete debacle that the White House is responsible for. We have a nationwide, in fact, a global pandemic that requires a national response to it. And this president's response has been to, first of all, say that it's something that's going to go away. We won't have any cases. Uh, it'll just disappear. And, uh, and then once it did not disappear, and bodies started stacking up, uh, then he decides that instead of this being a federal government issue, it should be a state government issue. So every state, go for it yourself. Go get your own personal protective equipment, or at least try to, uh, because uh, it's your responsibility. And uh, But meanwhile, his Department of Homeland Security and other agencies go out and uh, try to procure this equipment also. And uh, so that drives up the price for the equipment. Meanwhile, his uh, crony capitalist colleagues position themselves to be uh, the middle people to be able to get all of this federal money that is being allocated for uh, this uh, coronavirus epidemic testing uh, equipment like uh, uh, ventilators, the personal protective equipment, uh, gloves, masks, 
gowns, those kinds of things, all of that stuff that's needed to for public health officials to combat this virus, his people have gotten their hands on, and there's a, just a lot of money being made, and unfortunately, uh, people of color are the ones who are primarily afflicted uh, by this uh, virus thus far. We're dying at disproportionate numbers, and this president is uh, acting like everything is going to be okay. Don't worry about it. It'll soon be over. It'll be over by the end of May, uh, according to uh, uh, Vice President Pence, who heads up the uh, coronavirus task force, which we hear is about to be dismantled by this president because the uh, country is getting ready to reopen. The economy is going to start humming again, and everything's going to be okay right in time for me to get reelected. So that's kind of where we are on that. Well, Congressman Hank Johnson, you sure make it plain, and you're a straight shooter. That's why I like to have you on. Uh, and then being from down in Georgia, I wanted to make sure that that uh, my listeners, uh, Payward and I, our listeners, got a chance to hear directly from you. So uh, we'll, we'll, you know, when we see each other at, at, uh, in uh, Tunica, Mississippi in August or in D.C. in September, but I will stay in touch. And thank you very much for your time today, sir, and thank you for your service uh, to, the, to the, the country and for making sure that you keep it real with, and calling it out like it's supposed to be called out. So thank you very much, and I will be in touch well, on the private side. Thank you uh, for keeping it real out there in Seattle, making sure that everybody plays straight and everybody gets their fair share out there. So thank you for all you're doing. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay, thank you very much, Congressman Hank Johnson out of Georgia. Okay, hey, what happens? We've come, we've done another one. So uh, uh, I just want to give a quick shout out to Sound Transit Small Business Development Labor Compliance Office, City of Seattle's Person Construction Services Office. Uh, the Port of Seattle's University Contracting Office, Concourse Concessions, SeaTac Bar Group, LLC, Stephanie Ogle does our technology, Eddie Ryan, Hayward Evans, another edition of Urban Forum North, Northwest, and we'll talk with you again next Thursday. <laughs>